You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, the Northeast Football App and Engagement Editor here at Chronicle Live, and we've reached episode seven of our walk through the history of Newcastle United. Last week we covered 1909 to 1910, where Newcastle finally captured the FA Cup after failing to win four finals at the Old Crystal Palace. Today for episode seven, we're covering 1914 to 1918, which is of course World War One, and we'll be discussing how this affected the club. As ever, I'm joined by Paul Joannou, Newcastle United's official club historian. And joining us is Dr Alexander Jackson, who not only works as a curator at the National Football Museum, he's also a Newcastle United supporter as well. Alex, we'll start with you. First of all, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to have you with us. Can you give us a bit of a background on your history as a Newcastle United supporter and the work you do at the fantastic National Football Museum in Manchester? Yes, well, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I'm a curator at the museum, which is great because I get to essentially work with all the objects, helping look after them and uh, interpret them for display and work with the public with them. And uh, as you've mentioned, yeah, I'm a Newcastle United supporter, which is uh, it makes basically I'm in my dream job, uh, probably a few other people's dream job as well. Uh, and that goes back to the fact my, my dad was from Newcastle. So obviously you can tell from my accent I wasn't uh, raised there, but um, mm. I was brought up in Sheffield. Uh, each year we go up to my granddad's in Whitley Bay uh, and then head up to the game from theirs. Uh, and he was from uh, Stanley in County Durham. Uh, and actually he's a link to the First World War because his name was Victor. Uh, and they named him that because he was born on the 9th of November 1918. Oh, so instead of calling him John after his dad, like all the others had been in the family, uh, they called him after that. Brilliant. And then you work as a curator as well at the National Football Museum. Tell us a bit about what that might involve day to day. It's it's great because it involves a bit of everything. Like Sometimes I might be working on an exhibition, like our recent one on the Hall of Fame, uh, where we might be working with new objects that come in from like star players. Uh, other times it's looking after things behind the scenes. So some great Newcastle United items there in our archives that we preserve and care for, like uh, Vic Keeble's 1955 FA Cup Winners Medal, which is brilliant. And then all just great uh, great stuff, which is answering inquiries in the public, questions, also the great stuff that they bring and donate to the museum. So, uh, so yeah, it's just, it's brilliant because every week is different and there's always something new that I learn every day. Amazing. I'm jealous. Surrounded by historic football memorabilia, it sounds like a brilliant spot to be in. Paul, I sense this is going to be a big episode for us. World War One and, and Newcastle United, something of a, a specialist area for you, isn't it? You brought the book out to mark the centenary of the Great War in, in 2018 to the glory of God, Newcastle United and the Great War. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Uh, yes, well, at the time, I, I knew something about Newcastle United and the Great War, um, but not, not enough, not very much at all at that time. And throughout the centenary of uh, the, the four years of, of World War One, there was an awful lot uh, on the TV, and I decided to look into it a bit more deep, deeply um, and I spent two years researching uh, and putting together a full detailed review of Newcastle United, the club and all the players from 1914 to 1919 who were involved in the Great War. You know, how the club coped and, and how the footballers coped with the, the conflict 
and, and not just the first teamers, it was all the young reserves and the ex-players and future players. So it was a great, uh, it was a lovely and tragic story to, to look into. Um, and that's the end result was a, was a book on, on the whole subject. And Alex, you've written a book titled Football's Great War that is all about the period we're talking about today. Can you tell us a bit about that one too? Uh, yeah, so a bit like Paul, I sort of I knew a bit about uh, this, and then in 2014 uh, we did a, a an exhibition uh, about football and the Great War, and that was really great in terms of researching, getting to develop my knowledge, and we uncovered some great stories. And it was a really interesting exhibition. It kind of sort of it bit me a little bit, and the the one bit which really I thought was interesting was that there'd been relatively little written around the home front because a lot of these stories were about the players who'd gone to the front and those kind of that side of the conflict uh, but football still continued uh, and so I kind of decided <laughs> madly a little bit in my own spare time over the last seven years or so to like research it uh, so hopefully my book is coming out uh, early spring of next year and sort of exploring that sort of across the across the across England that story what went on look forward to it so we have two absolute experts on football and world war one so let's talk about how this huge event in human history affected newcastle united specifically paul coming to you newcastle had enjoyed a decade of, of mastery as we called it and they were renowned for their ambition on and off the field prior to world war one presumably this halted as war broke out in 1914 uh yes just about um you know, as the new season uh, began, the conflict uh, erupted more or less at the same time, uh, which really put an end to Newcastle United's rebuilding plans after that decade of Edwardian mastery. Um, remarkably, looking back now, uh, the game actually continued for the whole season uh, as soldiers went to the uh, Western Front in Belgium and France and elsewhere, uh, and they were being killed in their thousands. But football here at home continued, and, and that eventually proved hugely controversial and, you, and you've got some um some talking points on the controversy as well alex that that, that was surrounding this period of, of time in terms of britain and football in general yeah it's arguably sort of uh, uh well actually until the recent pandemic it was arguably the most controversial period in the game's history really because on the one hand the government had this business as normal uh, as usual message that it sent out trying to reassure the nation trying to stop economic disruption so they wanted people to keep going about their everyday lives and at the same time they needed to raise a, a mass army until 1916 they relied entirely on volunteers to join the forces as opposed to countries in the rest of europe who had mass conscript armies uh, so they needed to bring more men into the army and so you had football continuing with these big civilian crowds and some people were opposed to this some were opponents of football before the war and they thought it was just morally they thought just football wrong was wrong to begin with but other people thought also it was like morally wrong to see football continuing and on the other side you had people who thought football should continue to help things on the home front to reassure civilians uh, to provide entertainment for troops and so you kind of get a very bitter uh, sort of controversial arguments raging uh, and a great example is the earl of durham who gives a recruiting speech uh, at sunderland in November 1914 and he, he's very fed up and he says he'd rather wish the Germans dropped some bombs and broke apart to encourage everyone to sort of join the forces and realise where their priorities are. But at the same time there are some members of the crowd who aren't applauding like a lot of the people there who are amateur footballers and they ask the Durham Football Association to do a census essentially of who's joined up and it shows that by the end of the season 74% of local amateur footballers in the northeast have joined up so 
it's quite a complex situation where different people's on different sides of it have got very different views. Mm. Paul, specifically, how were Newcastle United impacted by this period? Well, like like all clubs throughout the country, um, as as the football was played out, uh, United uh, were hit very hard financially. It's dropped an alarmingly over the season. Um, and many clubs feared they would go out of existence, they would go bankrupt. Now, Newcastle weren't one of them. They, they were still still fairly secure. But rival Sunderland very nearly did go bankrupt. Uh, they also had to finance a new stand that they built. And uh, it was only thanks to the directors, the players and a lot of fans that they survived. On the, in terms of football, Newcastle struggled in league action, uh, but they did have a, a sort of mini FA Cup run um, and should have reached the latter stages, uh, but they lost to Chelsea on Tyneside after a replay. Um, so it wasn't a great season football-wise, uh, but you know, events off the field overtook matters uh, as the season developed. And presumably the focus shifted at some point during the 1914-15 season and these footballers enlisted to fight as the situation escalated. Yes, during the season, you know, many footballers around the country, uh, both professional and amateurs, started to join up in terms of volunteer uh, for the forces. Uh, Lord Kitchener's call to arms around the country arrived later in 1914 and into 1915. And, and the so-called PALS uh, battalions were formed around the country. And on Tyneside, United players joined in the Thumbling Fusiliers and the DLI in Durham as new units were formed. And in on Tyneside, especially the Newcastle commercials were were formed, and uh, uh, Newcastle United players uh, joined up, including emerging winger Tommy Goodwill, and he was a real talent. Yeah, we'll talk about Tommy in a bit of detail later on in the episode. Alex, can you tell us some of um, the specific players from the 1914 Newcastle squad who swapped their football boots for army boots and joined up? Uh, yeah, well, what you have, as Paul was mentioning, the, the, the PALS battalions, and so one of the uh, most sort of famous in football terms is the uh, Footballers' Battalion, which is raised in uh, December 1914. And it's kind of a response to the, the, the controversy that we were discussing before. And so that, that's quite something where you have, essentially, they were encouraging players and fans across the country to come together. Uh, and so there's uh, about a half a dozen former or uh, current or future Newcastle United players who join up, including uh, forward George Pike. And at the first meeting, there's uh, there's also a northeastern link in the sense that 10 players from Clapton Orient join up as a almost practically a team together at that first meeting, which is kind of like sort of like an image synonymous with that sort of uh, period of like friends joining up together. And that included uh, William Jonas, who's a former Northumberland uh, miner from Northumberland. Uh, he moved down to London, was a really popular member of the team down there and he joined up with a lot of his mates uh, and he was one of about 900 who were killed uh, on uh, were serving with the battalion on the western front during the first world war and in scotland there was a, a similar movement as well paul yes um you know actually just before the footballers battalion in, in uh, london was formed uh, edinburgh raised its own uh, battalion called uh, mccray's battalion uh, and that included uh, many hearts players joined up uh, amongst others and one very famous future Newcastle FA Cup winner was included, Jimmy Lowe, who won the trophy in 1924. And they fought alongside um, the Footballers Battalion and, and many of the conflicts on the Western Front. And staying with you, Paul, at what point did matches stop being played due to the war? 
Well, it was at, at the very end of the season. The 1914-15 campaign finished uh, and it was played out, uh, but it was inevitable that the game uh, would close down completely due to the mounting criticism uh, and, of course, the financial difficulties that every club faced. And that's what happened, really. Newcastle United rolled down the shutters uh, and in effect went into mothballs, uh, as did Sunderland and Middlesbrough in the northeast. Elsewhere, regional wartime football continued, but due to the, the, the really difficult travelling arrangements for northeast clubs, you know, no, no really, uh, no, no top clubs took part in in those uh, regional competitions. And presumably, players stopped being professional footballers, and and their income. Um, supply changed from from Newcastle United and they joined the cause in one way or another. Well, yes, all the players' contracts, all the professionals, were, the contracts were cancelled. Uh, they didn't get paid, uh, so they had to they had to initially find work somewhere else, and they started to join up with the forces. Eventually, when conscription arrived, all be employed in the many munition factories on Tyneside. Um, and I traced uh, when I researched into the club's players over 160 United players. Uh, and officials present, past and, and future uh, served in the forces and many, many more were engaged in essential war work uh, either down the pits, the shipyards or, or in the many munition factories um, along the Tyne and, and Weir. Alex, was there ever any suggestion that football could somehow continue while war went on or, or was that always out there question? Yeah, well, in the sort of the, the summer of 1915, I suppose mentioned. So sort of, yes, the the northeastern clubs decided that they were sort of essentially like going to not take part because there were these big debates about whether you could continue, whether it was right to continue, uh, and so the FA went for stopping professionalism to essentially remove any of the criticism. But they essentially left it up to the clubs to decide whether they did continue. And so quite a lot of the football clubs formed these regional leagues. And it was really fascinating reading Paul's book during my research because there was a bit of debate at Newcastle about whether they'd rejoin them at some point, which was really fascinating. But for quite a number of clubs, they played in these regional leagues throughout the throughout the war. There was about a million spectators, over a million spectators each season. So it kind of goes to show the game still had this kind of big interest for people. And what was quite interesting was obviously a lot of sort of soldiers were still coming back from the Western Front on leave or wounded and they're taking the chance when they could to see their teams play which you can imagine if you sort of going through that kind of really traumatic experience being able to connect with your civilian life from before the war is really important and so obviously it's quite tricky if you're a Newcastle United fan because you haven't got Newcastle games taking place to watch so what they did was with uh, I've come across some lovely references to Newcastle fans being particularly pleased to see Leeds City play if they were in their sort of local area because they had a lot of Newcastle United players who'd gone to play for them. Uh, and so there's a lovely account of like when the players get on the ball, Newcastle uh, or Geordies in the army shouting, now now United, uh, <laughs> instead of like now City. And uh, which was I, I just thought was just this really lovely uh, insight into how the guys had just taken this brief chance to connect with their former lives. Yeah, that's great. Uh, do we know how many Newcastle players or staff lost their lives in World War One, Paul? Uh, yes, um, we've, I've certainly uh, managed to uh, track all Newcastle's ex-players and players at the time of the Great War who, who were sadly killed. Those 23, which is an awful lot, who died as a result of the conflict and, and included was a VC winner. Several were killed on the very first day of the Battle of the Somme um, and during that, that uh, battle uh, in, in France, which raged for several weeks. So, you know, it, the, there was a lot of Newcastle players 
involved and, and sadly as i say 23 died wow that's amazing can you tell us any more about those players who were actually involved in the battle of the somme itself yeah well at the, the height of the early part of the great war um a huge ally defensive took place along the western front in july 1916. by then a lot of the all of the pals the, uh, battalions that were formed had gone through training and were now in france and belgium and they formed uh, a, a very much part of that uh, battle. And no fewer than 10 United men were killed in the lengthy battle. Two teammates side by side on the opening charge uh, over the top on July the 1st. Uh, they were both with the Newcastle Commercials and Tommy Goodwill, first team, a very popular player uh, and reserve fullback Dan Dunglinson uh, were killed side by side as they went over the top. Uh, also be killed was another reserve defender, Donald Bell, uh, who was awarded the Victoria Cross, the highest honour any soldier could be awarded. That's amazing. And can you talk a little bit more about Tommy Goodwell? Because, you know, he probably would have gone on to enjoy a, a really successful career at the club had he returned home safely from war. Yeah, well, he was a local lad. He, he hailed from Bates Cottages near Cramlington. Uh, and he joined Newcastle from local football and he found a place on the left wing during 1913-14 and 1914-15. And he was a, a, a very talented player, uh, fast with an eye for goal. Uh, many judges at the time tipped him even for international honours. He was he was uh, so well respected. Um, but his career was, was, of course, halted by the Great War uh, and he played 60 games for Newcastle, uh, scored six goals. Uh, and he was a hugely pro- popular player with the crowd, being a local lad. Yeah, I bet. And amazing to hear that a player associated with the club, Donald Bell, was awarded the Victoria Cross posthumously. Alex Paul tells me that Donald Bell's medal is actually at the National Football Museum. What can you tell us about Donald? Uh, yes, it's it's one of probably our, one of our key star items on display there. Uh, so yeah, Donald was a, a school a school teacher, so he played for Newcastle as an amateur earlier in his career. Uh, and by 1914, he was also uh, a professional with Bradford Park Avenue, who aren't a, a name that perhaps are familiar to too many people. But back in 1914, they were actually a first division club. Bradford had two big professional sides and he was at uh, Park Avenue. He also uh, believed that he should join up. And at the start of the war, he asked permission from the directors and they released him from his contract uh, and he signed up very early. Uh, he became an officer uh, and he served in the Princess of Wales uh, East Yorkshire Regiment. And so at the Battle of the Somme, he was leading his men across sort of open terrain from their trenches to the opposition. And there was machine, heavy machine gun fire coming down. And so he let out to the open with two of his men and he proceeded to move towards the enemy with grenades and bombed out essentially the en- enemy positions. So his men could then get into the trenches without heavy casualties. And so he was recommended for this. He was very modest. He wrote uh, home to his parents saying, oh, it's just a fluke. I didn't do much. Uh, and sadly, five days after he'd uh, committed that act of gallantry, he was killed doing a, a very similar feat shot by a sniper. And so his uh, medal uh, was auctioned in 2010 uh, and was bought by the Professional Footballers Association. And so it's been at the museum. And it's, uh, for me, an amazing item because uh, in 2014, we actually were requested to take it to actually to his, the site of his grave as part of a commemorative uh, event organised by most of the football body so it was yeah quite a strange uh, experience of taking that particular item to that particular spot where he's buried which is yeah, something in my career that well, i'll remember quite for a long time wow that's incredible to hear about donald sounds like a, 
an incredible personality and uh, it's fantastic that his medal is is still here and people are able to see it. Paul, do we know which specific corners of the world Newcastle United players were sent to during World War One? Uh, yeah, we certainly do. Um, I've managed to trace the military records of, of dozens of, of the players that served. And uh, um, you know, it was not only in France and Belgium. That's where the majority of, of the footballers uh, served um, on the Western Front. Um, but United's men were also in the Balkans. There was a lot of fighting uh, around there. The Middle East in Russia, uh, India and uh, on the seas in the Royal Navy, of course, uh, including the notable uh, Battle of Jutland at the at the start of the war. Paul, were any games of football played at St James's Park at all between the club being mothballed and the war ending? Uh, yes, Newcastle uh, and other clubs did play the odd game of football at St James's Park uh, and locally in, in 1915, 16 and 17, 18. They played a handful of war charity matches but it was with scratch lineups, really. Uh, weren't formal Newcastle United games. Uh, players were scattered all over the country, so they just had to grab uh, which footballers were available. United's teams during the height of the war were organised by Bill McCracken, who who worked at the Armstrong's Munition Factory, and he put together what was called an all-star team. But really, it wasn't until 1917-18 that the club decided to resume operations of sorts. Um, the first formed a, a junior eleven, titled the Newcastle Swifts, and, and that was with the aim of finding new talent uh, in the northeast in readiness for a return to the, to football normality. And was St James's Park itself requisitioned by the army and the government during the war? Uh, it was during the early part of the the war years. Um, St James's Park was uh, taken over by uh, the, the artillery, and um, they had. You know, guns and horses even stabled uh, in the old West Stand, and Newcastle weren't allowed to to visit the the ground for most of the week. Uh, they were allowed uh, during that 1914-15 season to to go. I think it was on a Friday and and on a Saturday for matches. And after the this professional football closed down, uh, the the ground was used for many events. Um, you know, charity events, athletics, carnivals, boxing. Um, there was choral singing. Uh, there was a famous uh, royal visit when 60,000 attended in 1917 when the King and Queen presented medals to uh, soldiers. Uh, and there was many local matches, munition uh, football teams played there. And as, as football you know, really still thrived locally along Tyneside and Wearside, um, there was many, many work sides, which were of course made up of many professional footballers now engaged in essential work. I see. And Alex, how did non-professional football do during this time? I'm thinking of the amateur game, young younger teams maybe, and, and the women's game as well. Yeah, as Paul was mentioning, sort of you still got a lot of those uh, big names uh, still in the area if they're in civilian jobs uh, connected with the war. And so it was really nice when I was doing research for the book, sort of finding out how they sort of, you could go down to your semi-professional level where some of the clubs were still playing at Wall's End. Uh, and uh, South Shields and you'd get sort of sort of what was lovely was getting these descriptions of how some of the Newcastle United fans migrated from St James's when there weren't the games every Saturday to these clubs through 1915-16 season and 16-17 season where they could see their like the former their former stars in different colours so to speak 
there's a lovely description now they're turning up a bit like described as being a bit like tourists who've gone down to london for the cup final sort of wandering around sort of unfamiliar with everything and after a few weeks they consider <laughs> themselves like proper regulars you know they've been going to Wolves End for like ages so they're all used to it which was a which was a lovely little image i wonder what the Wolves End regulars thought of all these <laughs> newcastle united fans who decide to come down uh, and then, as you mentioned, yeah, the women's football is a really, ama really amazing, important time in the history of the women's game. And uh, women's football starts becoming more popular, starts emerging more in 1916, uh, starts some of the early games are down in Portsmouth. But by 1917 and across 18, it's been played in quite a number of places across the country. And arguably, the sort of the hotbed where there's the most interest, the most teams, the most players is actually the northeast of England. There's uh, over 70 teams. You have these really well-organised, uh, popular munitionettes cups, as they're called, after the, the after the jobs that the women had in the munitions factories. And so they're getting crowds uh, for the finals uh, across 1917-18, which includes one at St James's, like 20,000, 22,000. So these uh, it really goes to show at that point how women's football as a spectator event was becoming more popular uh, and but sadly after the war uh, the FA introduces a ban in 1921 that stops FA affiliated clubs hosting uh, women's games and kind of puts the women's game back and makes it very hard for it to continue uh, mm. so it's kind of this lost moment almost in northeast football history in the sense of that there was this thriving scene that perhaps could have developed into a really great game but sadly it wasn't to be yeah, it's amazing to hear that you don't really associate this period with women's football, and it does sound like it was, you know, you know, one step forward, two steps back, which is, uh, which is a shame. Paul, any other interesting stories that emerged from this fascinating period that you can share with us too? Well, there are many, many what could be termed interesting war stories um, relating to Newcastle players uh, and officials as well. You know, far too many to mention, but I, but I will. You know, highlight a couple. Um, there was a, a United Reserve uh, fullback uh, played one game for the senior team. A chap called Jack Thomas. Uh, he was a Durham uh, miner from Sacriston. He joined up with the Durham Light Infantry uh, with several workmates, one of the pals uh, battalions, uh, and he was very quickly into action around Ypres in 1915 in Belgium. Took part in part in a fierce battle. Uh, he was captured, became a prisoner of war. But uh, Jack was determined to escape, and, and he tried a few times, uh, got caught uh, uh, and, and re-prisoned, um, and, but he eventually succeeded with the help of a hidden compass, uh, believe it or not, in a, in a food parcel which was sent back from uh, Sacriston uh, to the camp. Um, he escaped with four French colleagues, and he risked life uh, to, to, to get back to the UK, um, but he reached the Dutch border, uh, and he managed to get a, a boat back to uh, England. Uh, but his troubles didn't end there because the British thought he, he was a spy for the Germans. Uh, he was one of the very first to, to, to escape and reach uh, the UK, and uh, they didn't believe that he could get back himself. But he eventually uh, persuaded them uh, that he was uh, uh, you know, very much an Allied soldier, and he became... You know, very much a respected soldier, and they thought he could be used. The uh, the military thought he could be used uh, again on the Western Front uh, in France and in Belgium. Uh, so they uh, put him into the intelligence corps, which were very much uh, an early version of MI5 and MI6 and all that. Uh, mm -hmm. So he was sent back to the continent as as a sort of 007 agent. 
uh, on oh, yeah. counter espionage work um, around Dieppe and Le Havre, uh, tracking down German agents. And uh, sure. uh, he was successful in that, and he, he was eventually awarded the MSM, uh, a high-ranking medal. And after the war, he played a little bit of football. He, he, he was with Brighton and Spennymoor, and then went back to the pits. So, um, and he told his story in his local church newspaper, which has survived to this day. And when I met the family, they managed to give me a copy of the whole various episodes of his story, uh, which related his, his detailed account of World War One. Uh, so that's one very interesting uh, tale. Um, the other one covers um, a famous United director and chairman of the future, uh, William McKeague who was a very prominent, or became a very prominent Newcastle uh, citizen, Lord mm -hmm. Mayor, and, and uh, famous in the boardroom at Newcastle United in the 50s and 60s, uh, and the father of, of the later chairman, uh, Gordon McKee. And he was a teenager fighting uh, the Bolsheviks, which is a rather forgotten conflict of the, of the Great War. He was only 17 years old when he joined up, uh, volunteered, and he joined into the Army Service Corps. Um, but he wanted uh, action on the continent rather than sitting behind a desk in the UK. So he volunteered for the British forces to assist the white Russians fight the Bolsheviks in, uh, in Russia as, as the civil war raged there uh, as a sort of side issue to the Great War. So he went 1918 to Russia, uh, joined the fight as they uh, headed for Moscow. He was badly wounded, uh, but still promoted to warrant officer. Uh, and he became the, the youngest in, in the British Army, um, and he was awarded the MSM as well, uh, and also high-ranking uh, Russian honours, and, and William came back. He, he came back just virtually 21 years old and, and uh, eventually became a politician and Newcastle United director, and he also served in World War II as a staff officer. So he, hmm. his story is, is a really interesting one as well. Yeah. Some life. And any, any others to add to that? Oh, well, there's, there's, there's really dozens. You know, uh, one of the other ones would be Dick Little, who uh, was a, a fullback at Newcastle United before the war. And he uh, served in the Royal Navy, eventually became one of the sailors on the Grand Fleet in the North Sea uh, when they encountered uh, the German fleet in the very early months of the war. Uh, it was feared that the the German fleet would, would become a huge nuisance to the British forces. But you know, there was just a massive uh, battle in the North Sea uh, between the, the Grand Fleet and the German fleet. And uh, Dick Little was one of those uh, sailors on, on board, uh, one of the destroyers uh, accompanying the big battleships. Um, he survived and went on to have a decent career in the game. Great, good to hear. Um, how was the normality marked? Uh, how was the return to normality marked in, in football circles, Paul, when the war did end? Yeah, well, as 1918 sort of developed, there was much hope that the terrible war would at last end, and it, and, and it did. Um, and, of course, we all know on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, it came to an end. Unfortunately, though, United players were killed to the end. Um, young reserve Owen McManus died on the 6th of November, which was very close to the end. And a former inside forward from Gateshead, Cliff Winter, he died a month earlier in October. You know, they were tragic um, uh, uh, deaths so close to, to, to peace being restored. 
to mark the very end of the Great War, um, although the Russian Civil War fighting continued into 1919 with William McKeague involved, football returned with, with what were called victory matches around the country. Uh, and in the Northeast, uh, the Northern Victory League was arranged between local clubs. Uh, so we had Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough all returning to action, Darlington, Hartlepool, Scotswood, Durham City and South Shields taking part in a mini league in January uh, January to March 1919. And Alex, once the dust settled, how did football as an organised concept look as plans to resume for the 1919-20 season were made? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. So uh, they, they reinstitute the national leagues uh, as they'd um, uh, had before the start of the war. So the regional leagues go. Uh, and you do get a post-war boom in the, uh, the immediate few seasons after the war. So the game really takes off. That's that pent-up interest amongst all the soldiers coming back. Uh, some soldiers who've discovered football that weren't interested in it, but discovered it playing it whilst in France. But it's also quite tough for the, the clubs in terms of how they, and the players especially, in terms of how they approach it, because obviously you've got guys who have potentially coming back, you're just too old to continue, young players you haven't seen for three or four years, and sort of slightly outside the Newcastle context, but across at Sunderland, uh, there's some quite poignant stories where they had two players called Jimmy Seed and Tom Wilson. They were both essentially teenagers, young men who joined up as volunteers in 1915. Uh, they served their country at the front. They came back, Jimmy Seed had been gassed, Tom Wilson had bashed his knee whilst taking food up the up to the front lines during, under enemy fire. And both of them came back, they played, each played a game or so, uh, and were written off by the club directors who thought they just weren't good enough to keep mm. on, there was no point. And so both of them were given free transfers. Uh, uh, but fortunately, they sort of went on. Jimmy Seed went down to South Wales, resurrected his career there, was a cup winner with Tottenham within a few seasons. Tom Wilson went to Huddersfield and he played alongside another player called Samuel Wadsworth from Blackburn Rovers, who again joined, he lied about his age to join up because he was too mm. young. Uh, and he came back uh, again, sort of having been wounded. Uh, and so Tom Wilson played alongside Samuel Wadsworth and they both they won three back-to-back titles with Huddersfield Town uh, and also an FA Cup winner's medal. Uh, and all three became an England international. So they're the sort yeah. of the lucky stories that we know about guys who... Yeah overcame those obstacles but for obviously a lot of players we may have come back being rejected and that would have been it perhaps a promising career in 1914 was no no longer to be had in 1918 which is mm-hmm. 1919 so it's it's fascinating because we're still exploring those stories and finding out more about them hmm. and paul who did newcastle face in their first official game back after world war one well united had to travel to london uh, and to face arsenal when the season reopened uh, and it was the biggest crowd of the day, uh, 55,000, saw United win 1-0. The Magpies, in fact, went on to have a very good season uh, with several new youngsters in the side uh, and a handful of the Edwardian greats, such as Bill McCracken and Jimmy Lawrence, uh, still in the side. Uh, At one point, uh, they were challenging for the title, but fell short in the last couple of months, finishing in eighth position. And financially, did it take long for Newcastle to recover? Not really. Finances improved rapidly. Uh, the Gates um, jumped from a low point in 1914 uh, of an average of 18,000 to over 37,000. Uh, money was soon to flow uh, back into the United Bank account and the Magpies with the splash outs again in the transfer market. And they became one of the best sides during the, the 20s in English football. Very good. And uh, Newcastle fans listening might remember that the club fairly recently moved to create a more 
prominent memorial at St James's Park to honour the players, staff and officials who lost their lives in World War One in 2018. You had some involvement in that, didn't you, Paul? Uh, yes, certainly did. We managed to create a design and create a, a much bigger memorial to those players who uh, were killed in the Great War. There was an original rule of honour erected way back in 1920, uh, but that only really covered uh, those men who were on the club's staff at the time and didn't include former players to be uh, killed. Uh, so in November 2018, as the centenary of the conflict closed, uh, United unveiled a much larger and imposing marble memorial uh, to United's players. It's situated next to the club's main atrium entrance on Barrack Road, and it also covers uh, and remembers those who were killed in World War Two. Yeah, and for people watching on video on YouTube, we can reveal a picture of that memorial here, which is... Like you say, it'll be familiar to regular match day goers at St James's Park. And having listened to you both chat about the impact the World War had on Newcastle, I look forward to having a closer look at this next time I'm outside the stadium um, and remembering the impact the war had on our football club. Thank you both. Alex, it's been great to have, have you with us. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like to add? Fantastic to have your expertise as, as a curator at the National Football Museum and uh, someone with an expert on the World War and a Newcastle United fan. Oh, thank you very much for having me on the show. And uh, yeah, if I was going to add one thing, it's obviously if you are in uh, Manchester and fancy a visit to the National Football Museum, uh, please do come by. Yeah, we'd love to see you there. And there's some lovely Newcastle United material on display, uh, as well as a lot of other interesting material as well. So yeah, thanks again. Absolutely. So there we are, a big episode, Newcastle and World War One. Huge thanks to you both. Um, do seek out Paul and Alex's books on World War One. I'll put some details for those in the description. And, you know, when circumstances allow... You must visit the National Football Museum. It's one of my favourite places in the world. Fantastic place. Lots of uh, Newcastle United memorabilia there, as Alex says, in amongst all the other fantastic exhibits on, on display. And we'll be back next week to talk about Newcastle United's first ever visit to Wembley. And spoiler alert, another FA Cup win. So that's going to be a good one. In the meantime, please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you use. Follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United channels on social media. We're at Chronicle NUFC on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And keep an eye out for new episodes of Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United every week. If you have a history question about Newcastle, we have the perfect person to answer here. Email those to the EIBW podcast at reachplc.com. I'll pick out some of the best for future shows and we might put them to Paul and he can try and answer them. Lastly, stay up to date with everything black and white by subscribing to our Newcastle United newsletter. It's free. You get a morning news roundup, an evening news roundup, and breaking news as and when it happens directly emailed to your inbox. The link is in the show notes. Hit that, scroll down to Sport, Newcastle United updates, tick the box, and you'll be signed up. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United, with me, Matt Ketchell, Paul Joannou, and Dr. Alexander Jackson. <laughs>